Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, why survey work is underway on Dunleary's historic piers, memories of fishing out of scaries, and a robot to clean up our lakes and harbours. The two piers in Dunleary are probably the most popular walking spots in the country. Tens of thousands of people walk the east and west piers every week, and recently a few of you have been in contact with the programme wondering what the survey work being carried out there was at the moment. Tim Ryan is the operations manager in Dunleary Harbour, and when I met him recently on the west pier, he told me about the surveys, but first, something of the history of the harbour. It's an absolutely enormous structure. Yes, it is. It's a 200-year-old uh, man-made harbour, largest uh, man-made harbour of its kind in Ireland. Um, its uh, uses, I suppose, have changed over the years, as has its ownership, um, and it was taken over by the local authority in 2018. Um, so it's now under local authority control, having, I suppose, started off as a port of refuse for Dublin Bay, where ships coming into Dublin Port would have seeked shelter. Um, we've basically grown over the years into a large uh, marine leisure destination, tourism destination. Uh, there were the ma- mailboats going across the UK, and unfortunately that service ceased around 2015. Um, so now we're concentrating primarily, due to the National Ports Policy, on marine and leisure tourism in Dunleary. At the moment, because the local authority has taken over, you're undertaking a survey of the whole harbour, of its construction, and looking at what work might have to be done. Well, yes. Um, the, the, as I said, the, the local authority took over Dunleary Harbour in October 2018, um, and there's a lot of talk about infrastructure deficits and you know potential costs on the local authority. So what we're trying to do now, I suppose, is to quantify some of that. So we have conducted a number of surveys and are conducting surveys ongoing at the moment. Um, we're currently doing one on the West Pier. It's a condition-based survey on the West Pier just to have a look at how the structure is, how it's fared over the years, and to quantify any damage uh, so that we can target our maintenance spend on it over the next few years. Um, we're also looking at other areas in the harbour, like uh, St Michael's Pier, the East Pier, um, and various other structures. When this harbour was built, it's huge lumps of granite placed loosely on top of each other. How sta- It must be very stable. Yes, if you look at a cross-section of the East or West Pier, the cross-section looks like a pyramid almost, and you're, you're correct, it's, it's large granite boulders placed on the seabed, essentially, and... Um, and then more boulders placed on top of those, and that... They, they were dragged from a quarry. If that building wasn't there, we could practically see where the quarry is. Yes, they were all brought down uh, by rail um, from Dorky Quarry, essentially. Um, some of the East Pier stone may have come from closer, sort of Moran Park area, the quarry there, but a lot of it came from Dorky Quarry, yes. It was all built by hand, essentially, without modern cranes and things that you have now. So it's a remarkable structure. And what, it's a bit like an iceberg as well. What you see on top of the water is a very small portion of... As I say, the cross-section is actually pyramidal, so it... it stretches right out into the seabed either side of us. What does the survey you're undertaking, what does that entail? Um, So essentially what we're trying to do is uh, capture the state of the pier at the moment. So um, as I said, a lot of the pier is underwater, so there are divers who will go down below water and um, photograph, video and measure any voids that we find in the pier. And then there are boat surveys and land-based surveys above water as well. So really we're looking for voids or displacement of stone, um, any movement, that kind of thing, that could then be further exasperated by uh, waves and wind over time. The most notable thing, and we had people actually contact the programme, is you had to shave off all of the seaweed to get a start. Yes, um, particularly in what we call the intertidal area, so the area between 
low and high water. A lot of marine growth uh, exists there. And it's very difficult to, you can tell there's a void, but it's very difficult to quantify how big that void is or how deep it goes. So the first thing we do is we remove the marine growth and gives you a really clear image then of the extent and the nature of the voids that we find. For something that's been here for 200 years, it's an incredible structure. It is an incredible structure. I mean, to consider trying to build it now, you, you wouldn't. Um, it'd be very, very expensive. But it does require you constant maintenance. About several billion? I, I dread to think uh, where would you get the stone from alone, you know, it's, and it's granite. So, you know, the source of that much granite at the moment. Um, and they're, both piers are a mile long, so it's a considerable amount of granite. Um, but the important thing, I suppose, is that like anything, particularly anything historical, it does require ongoing maintenance inspection to make sure that it does last another 200 years. Yeah. But having said that, because the harbour itself is, is almost two kilometres in length between piers, you can get quite a bit of uh, swell on a really windy day and that does uh, chip away at the inside of both piers as well and it's really the inside of the west pier that we're looking at currently we did this survey a number of years ago on the inside of the east pier so we have a good picture of where that is at and it enabled us to uh, categorize the most important areas to concentrate our maintenance spend on for the next few years what do, what is the council thinking of the future of the harbour well we've gone out with consultants to do a large uh, consultation exercise um, which is just sort of coming to fruition now we hope to have a report in the next few weeks National policy would be that we are a marine and leisure tourism destination. That's where our future lies. Obviously, there is this infrastructure which needs to be upkept and uh, there's a spend involved in that. So we need to have a source of revenue to be able to fund that expenditure to make sure that the harbour is kept in the pristine condition that it is. I suppose what the future holds is, is to some degree a little bit unknown. We have a few ideas, but we're really awaiting the consultant's report to see what direction that will point us in and uh, we look forward to the challenge under the local authority now to, to move the harbour into the next phase of its existence. It seems unlikely that there will be a ferry here again, maybe small cruise ships? I think personally it is unlikely that there will be a ferry here again. Um, Dunleary, there's a combination of factors, I suppose the road infrastructure around Dunleary doesn't really lead to it. Uh, all the ferry companies have consolidated their operations into Dublin Port um, so you'd really be talking, I suppose, about a new operator coming in and there'd be stiff competition to go up against the existing operators in that scenario. Yeah, we would see small cruise ships uh, as an important part of the marine leisure tourism. Uh, we've had a, a growing demand for them and if it hadn't been for COVID, we would have had a very busy year for cruise ships this year. Great. And we are informed by the companies that while it's on hold at the moment and just starting slowly to come back, that they expect a strong resurgence once the vaccination programmes and everything are undertaken. So we can expect, hopefully, visits from a lot of cruise ships in the coming years. Besides the cruise phrase, you are doing an awful lot of business with survey ships, things like that. The much-talked-about development of wind farms along the East Coast, we are seeing a massive growth in um, visits from survey vessels, both to our own berths and within the marina here in Dunleary over the past few months. And we expect that to carry on for the next number of months as the surveys progress and, the, I suppose, into the development phase of the wind farms when they get their consents and everything in order. They won't actually be transporting the big units from here. It will be a support base. Yes, well, I mean, there, there are a number of options. We, we don't anticipate that we'd have the land bank to enable them to actually do the construction from here. But certainly, sort of the initial survey phase and then in the operations and maintenance, we would be one of the closest harbours in terms of proximity to, uh, to several of them. So we would certainly hope to gain some of that business in the future years, yes. And thanks to Tim Ryan of Dunleary Harbour. While most of the fishing has now gone from Dunleary, there are still fishermen working out of scurries in North County Dublin. But even there, things are changing fast, with Brexit bringing the latest blow to the trade. Connor Sweetman has been visiting scurries for seascapes and he met with one retired fisherman there and heard about the business. 
Skerries is a picturesque seaside town in North County Dublin. The harbour has always been a hive of activity. These days it's mostly full of people out walking their dogs, meeting for coffees or going for a few pints. In the 1970s, however, the harbour was a hive of activity as one of the busiest fishing ports in the country. But like in a lot of areas, increases in regulation and advancements in technology have meant that it's harder to make money operating out of a small base like Scaries. One man who's at a front row seat to these changes is Owen Brannigan, or as everyone calls him. Oh, Brano, yeah. Everyone knows me as Brano. No one knows me as, uh, as Owen. It's all, they all know me as Brano. My, my three sons, I think they're all called Brano as well. <laughs> so just describe where we are. We're on Scaries Harbour here now at the minute. It's a beautiful day. Um, over the years, it's, it's deteriorated a lot now. The, the mid-70s, there was up to 35, 36 boats here. It was one of the major earners in the country at that time, in the 70s, 1970s. The, the, these are all razor boats now. There's no uh, trawlers here anymore. These are all fish razor clams. That's the cage there hanging out of the back of the boats. There's no trawlers like where you throw a net out. These are all just uh, doing razor fishing. Uh, compared to, as I say, the mid-70s, there was 36 boats here. And uh, it was a thriving port. And I started in 1972. I was 16. And I was earning more money than my father was at the building at that time. What was the attraction for you when you, when you were 16? The money. So no romance at all. No, no, no. <laughs> Rano started his life in fishing on a boat called the Ross Cal. It was hard work. You could be on your knees tanning prawns for up to 18 hours a day, but it paid well. The next boat Rano worked on was called the Miraculous, and that paid better again. Then, after many years learning his trade and working on other people's boats, Rano decided to go out on his own. It was great, great times. I got my first boat then in 1984. And like, so you got your own boat then in the 80s. And like, what was the moment that you decided, I, I can go out on my own? Well, I, I, I brought out the guy I was working for, Cyril Wilde. I brought his boat out a few times. I skippered it for him. If he wasn't well or he needed time off. So uh, I brought the Miraculous out several times. And uh, I just decided to get my own boat, a young family then. And uh, ah, we never looked back, really. You know, there was, there was good old times. I got the second boat then uh, in 1997 called the Kestrel. The biggest one I got now was a boat called the Darnet. Uh, it was about as big as you could have in this harbour uh, at the time. It was a 65 foot boat. Got her in 2002. And then my son started uh, lobster fishing in Lakshini and then he, he came with me at the trawling. And then the last boat we got, he, he got it in his name, uh, the Nasica. Fine boat, so uh, that's the boat that's out now at the moment on the west coast. But you wouldn't come in here; it'd be too uh, too shallow the water here in Skerries. You know. Around the same time as Brano was learning his trade in the 1970s, the first Europe-wide fishing rules were created. Over the years, these rules have evolved into what is now known as the EU Common Fisheries Policy. This means that each country in the EU can only catch a certain quota of fish in each fishing area. With Britain leaving the EU, these quotas have had to be renegotiated. What's now with Brexit, or if anything? Brexit has done a lot of harm really? to the fishing. Yeah, the quota were down 15% on, on the fishing uh, due to Brexit. 
and the EU is imposing new rules all the time on the fishing and it makes it a lot harder you know mm. they've also brought in a new system just recently that uh, they're not accepting the weighing of the the fish in the factories they want them weighed on the harbour which doesn't suit you know because you mightn't be landing in the harbour that the catch is going to it doesn't affect the prawn boats as much as the fish boats but it does affect them the target for the prawn boats is prawns and your, your fish is just a bycatch but uh, they're checked every so often with the Department of Fisheries, you know, and to do a check and make sure everything is right and check the logbooks. It's when I was at the fishing now, you had paper logbooks and you filled them in, but now it's electronic. They have to email them at 12 o'clock every night yeah. what they had for their day's catch. Yeah, yeah. So if they're boarded then by the Navy, it has to correspond what's in the hold and what they're after logging, you know. One of the key fishing areas for Irish trawlers is the Porcupine Bank, which is 180 miles off the coast of Galway. It's a long journey. It's about 42 hours to go from Skerries around to Galway. Mm. And then it's 42 hours back. It's 42 hours back. Yeah. But you, once you'd go there, you'd stay there for a month or two. All oh, right, OK. Ah, yeah, you'd stay there and you'd come back by train. All oh, right, you'd leave the boat there. Leave the boat there. When you'd, you'd do maybe two weeks fishing, you'd, you take a few days off and go home, yeah. then come back in the train. Yeah. It takes 22 hours to go from the fishing grounds on the west coast to, to, to land, yeah. to, to come ashore, so it's too far. Wow. I didn't so realise it was that far out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're on the continental shelf there. It's called the Porcupine Bank. That's what they're fishing now. There's a, lump, a load of boats, a lot of foreign boats there at the moment. And uh, all the boats, the English... The, the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, the Belgians, they're all fishing there now. And once this month is up, our Irish boats have no more quota. But all the rest of the EU countries have. It's, it's, it's not great because it's our waters. But we're such a small country, the quota is very low for us. That makes sense. So someone like Spain or France... They yeah. have a bigger quota. Oh, much bigger, yeah. much bigger than us. So it's 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 a bit sad, really, because it's it's a better time of the year. It's yeah. safer, yeah. Even for health and safety reasons, like our boat now had quota the whole winter in, in through the bad weather, and now that the weather is coming good, they've no quota now till probably next September. Right. Okay. Yeah. But we can fish on the south coast or out here on the east coast. Yeah. But uh, we, we've no quota uh, on the on the on the parking point bank, and that's where you want it because that's where you you get your bit of a lift. It's a big bronze, huge bronze. They're like small lobsters. As well as changes to fishing regulations over the years, the boats themselves have gotten much bigger and more advanced. It's all hydraulics, and the skipper can even shoot the gear from the wheelhouse. And there's big net drums, whereas we had to pull the nets in by hand. Oh wow. They've net drums now and they roll them in like in a spool yeah. at the back of the boats. And when I was at, there was only one net. Then they brought in a thing called twin rigging. Now, my third trawler, we done the twin rigging. That's pulling two nets. But now, since then, they're pulling four nets. It's called quad rigging. And that's what our, our boat, our, my son's boat, is doing at the moment. So the boats must be huge to support oh, they're, that. They're, they're big, the big power in them. Yeah. You know, it's not much, it's no bigger than the boat I had, but it's Heavier. much more modern and yeah. bigger and yeah. much beamier, much 
wider. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But they're huge power in them. Like you're burning 1,800 litres of diesel a day in them boats, whereas that, in my first boat, that would have done me for a week. No bother. Uh-huh. There's a seal. That's a seal, yeah. yeah. Sammy the seal. <laughs> People call him Sammy the seal anyway. <laughs> well, that lad, now, if you, if you were on the boat, you could lean over and he'd take the fish out of, out of your hand, like. So as you're competing with him for food. <laughs> Despite all the changes in regulation and technology, one thing that hasn't changed is the camaraderie among fishermen. There's be a great buzz with, with, the, with the lads, you know. Um, you'd have to be because you're in, in a confined space on a boat. Especially now, uh, in my time we just used to day fish. So you're in there the scaries every day. And you didn't fish weekends. But now, they, my son is out now, I think he's out six, six or seven days now. So they're all in a confined space. So they have to get on, you know. Yeah. And uh, and they do, you know, they do get on well enough. Yeah. And do you ever like um, uh, when you have someone on the boat who's it's their first time out, and you think to yourself they're not going to last? Yes, you kn- you know straight away to be quite honest. What, what are the telltale signs? <laughs> uh, well, clearly getting sick. You don't mind anyone can get sick when they're not used to it, but the seasickness it does leave them weak. But but the lad that gets sick and has to go to bunk and doesn't get up again. He's never going to be any good. But, but the lad that gets sick and tries to keep working, he, he will make it, you know. But uh, I got sick myself for a couple of months when I, when I went fishing. But you, you just uh, keep going. You, just, you, could, you don't go down the bunk and leave the rest of the lads there to do your work. You know? What's the future looking like now for the, for the modern fishermen? Um, with Brexit now, I don't know. I just don't know. Um, my son was thinking of getting another boat. But we'd have to wait and see what happens because we've lost 15% of the quota. We're going to lose some fishing on the south coast because that's English waters. It's going to be fizzled out over the next five years. We're allowed fish there at the moment. But over the next five years, after five years, you won't be. So, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think, the outlook doesn't look hundred percent at the moment, anyway. Now, with Brexit and all the rest, is there anything else I'm missing? Or to get it all, do you think? I think I think they've covered nearly everything. Yeah, going from the early years to the later years, I think so. Is there anything else you'd like people to know? Uh, stay away from fishing. <laughs> Connor Sweetman with Owen Brannigan in Skerries, North County, Dublin. Kean Dalton is a final year student in GMIT's engineering department. And he recently won the Engineers Ireland West Project Award for the invention of a robot which clears rubbish from lakes and harbours. Kean is 22, he's from Clare Galway, and he told me about the robot, the Aquidlow. Well, what I've invented is... Uh I suppose, a, a waste removal robot for marine harbours and rivers. I came up with the idea after even myself looking at rivers and harbours in my local area and seeing, you know, floating waste and plastics and everything and uh, just how big a problem it is. From that, I kind of started to brainstorm and I came into fourth, I was, I'm in fourth year mechanical engineering and I had to come up with a project 
So that kind of gave me a brainstorm and for a potential idea to try and combat these problems. And that's where I kind of came up with the waste removal robot, I suppose. Okay, so you've, you've built a prototype? I have, yeah. How does it work? So the actual prototype model, um, it works off a DF robot um, circuit board. Okay, this circuit board, what's that? So basically, yeah. So basically, it's a board that can be plugged into your computer. And uh, you can do Arduino um, programming on it, which is, you know, putting in different code and stuff to instruct the board what to do. From this, then, uh, you can actually uh, hook the... Once you've uploaded the program onto the board, you can download an app um, and control via Bluetooth, you know, the different programs you put in and the different uh, commands. If you wanted the robot to go forward or if you wanted it to go back or sideways, you can control it then all off your phone by Bluetooth. What size is this going to be? What size would you envisage it when it's fully built? The concept at the moment is about a third of the size of what I actually envisioned it to be. It'll be about a metre by a metre and a half by about half a metre high. So it'd be quite big. It'd come to a weight of about uh, 30 kg, I would say, all in. If I was trying to bring it um, a stage further, I would want it to be autonomous so that, you know, you wouldn't have to control it, I suppose, that it could go around by itself by either, say, so using solar power or, you know, GPS or, you yeah. know, lay out a certain platform that it would be able to go pick up the rubbish, you know? Yeah, so maybe like one of those automated lawnmowers. Exactly, like the lawnmowers or even the hoovers you have now inside in the house. Exactly, yeah. And how does it actually collect the rubbish? I think it has a basket on front. It does. So it has a, a very um, easy attachable and detachable basket. It's kind of, it sits about halfway down the water, so it collects the surface rubbish. And once it's all gathered into the basket, you can bring it back to shore or command it back to shore. And uh, it attaches from side clips and uh, you can empty it and reattach it and put it back out onto the water then to collect more. So in an ideal world, if I'm running a marina, say Kilrush or wherever, or a small harbour somewhere, I'm the harbour master, I could buy or rent this for a season and off I go. Well, the idea would be to definitely, if it was to become a product, to you know sell it to the public and even businesses or industries. Even the county council, um, say hotels that have marines around them or little ponds that they want to clear out, you know, there's you know, there's endless opportunities for it there. How long did it take you to develop this? So designing this, it started back in September at the start, at the start of the college year when I had to come up with the project for um, my fourth year project. Like, And uh, I suppose it started off with the research and uh, how much waste was in the water and everything to do with that. Um, there was a lot of things I had to take into consideration here with this, just with, um, you know, regards the buoyancy and the stability of it in the water. When I, was, I had to research, I was using some of my modules like fluid mechanics and um, computer-aided engineering to help me with this. Yeah, so once I came up with it then, I was kind of thinking I have to come up with some kind of name. So I called it the Aqua Glow Vessel. So aqua for water and then glow for gathering litter in water. And also, when I thought of aqua glow, it would be good to make the vessel uh, somewhat fluorescent in the water, so it'd be easy to see. So, you know, hence the orange fluorescent color on it. After that, then I had to think of how it was going to be powered, and uh, so I, I thought of the Bluetooth-enabled app, so that I'd be able to control it via remote control on the app. A lot of different things came in, say with say solar power or GPS and different things like that so I researched them heavily but came ultimately to the conclusion of um, controlling the fear Bluetooth. 
that's where it is now today from the concept and the 3D printed model that I made for it. Yeah, they, they're pretty excited about in GMIT about it. You've won a prize already. I have. Yeah, yeah. They're very excited about it already. Yeah, I actually, so I won the award um, for the poster competition. You're going to be in the Engineers Ireland Award. I am indeed. Yeah. Basically, once I had won, I was given an initial assessment to be able to go into the Engineers Ireland Award. And it's very exciting, you know. I wasn't expecting it at all. It was kind of an added bonus to winning the poster award. What what kind of a, a vehicle will it be? Is it a plastic box? Does it have a little electric propeller? Um, yeah, so it has two propellers situated down near the back of the vessel. I kind of, I spend a lot of time on the design side of it. You know, since I'm specialising in design, I'm, I'm very passionate about the aesthetics and the ergonomics of the piece the overall um, fluidity of it and how it would actually um, drive through the water. Where would you hope it, it goes from here? From here? Well, I'd hope it could be definitely recognised as a product and, uh, and people would take an interest in it. Maybe, as I said there before, just to have some kind of an autom- autonomous feature to it that it could be programmed to um, go by itself and you know not have the, the... It's great definitely to have the human interaction side but to have it going by itself will be a massive achievement in the future and the best of luck to key and dalton with that project if you want to find out more about it just look at the gmit website and you can contact him through the college now that's it for seascapes for this week we're back at the same time next friday Everything on the programme is podcast, it's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.